E-commerce isn't just an aspect of growing a successful wine business, it is crucial. And that's why I strongly recommend working with Offset Partners. As a proudly independent e-commerce technology and brand design company based in wine country, Offset understands the operational nuances and the customer service imperatives that distinguish a great online buying experience from a mediocre one. And that's why leading and legendary brands like Saxum, Arnott Roberts, and Kermit Lynch Wine Merchant choose Offset's proprietary commerce technology platform to power their DTC sales. If you're an allocated winery or a high-touch merchant that values an elegant, effective commerce solution for both you, your customers, and your team, reach out to the smart team at offsetpartners.com. That's O-F-F-S-E-T, partners with an S, dot com, to craft a better direct-to-consumer experience. I'll drink to that, where we get behind the scenes of the beverage business. I'm Levy Dalton. I'm Erin Scala. And here's our show today. Bill Easton of Easton Wines and also Domaine de Terre Rouge in the Shenandoah Valley on the show today. Hello, sir. How are you? Great. Thanks very much for having me. So you grew up in Sacramento. I did. I grew up in Sacramento. I was born there and went to public schools there. Got out of high school in 1970 and went to UC Berkeley. What was going on in Berkeley at that time? The Vietnam War was just ending or it just ended the year before. There was, you know, a a lot going on in the culinary world, which is, I think, one of the impetuses for me to get into the wine business. There was uh, restaurants starting up, people doing interesting stuff, looking for locally sourced foods and all kinds of food businesses, wine shops, people starting to import wine from Europe. You know, the fine wine trade had been going in the uh, San Francisco Bay Area since the 50s, but, you know, it was maturing and kind of solidifying and multiplying and fractionalizing into specialties. Why do you think that was happening? You know, we were all young, had a lot of energy, and people were just going in all kinds of crazy directions. And, you know, there were people who were chefs who, you know, were studied anthropology at UC Berkeley. They'd gone off to Yucatan and gotten involved with the cuisine of the Yucatan in Mexico, guys like Mark Miller, and, uh, you know, opened restaurants based on that. You know, Jeremiah Tower was doing his thing. Alice Waters was doing her thing. Eventually, he, uh, you know, worked for Alice, and then he went off and did his own thing. You know, there was, uh, you know, Michael Wilde at the Bay Wolf. Uh, it's on and on. I mean, I could go on for hours about the food scene, and the wine scene was similar. You know, there were a lot of guys that uh, got into wine. Maybe they had another profession. I'm thinking of one guy right now that I used to buy wine from. He, was, he had a wine shop that was only open four hours a week. It was open on Saturdays from like 9 a.m. to noon or something. And it was his excuse to have an ABC license to import Bordeaux for his own personal seller. But then he used to sell stuff too. So I remember buying my first case of Sauternes from this guy, 75 Riasec for like 120 bucks a case. And the guy was a veterinarian. His name was George Linton. So there was, there was a lot of quirky stuff like that. And then there was solid stuff. You know, Draper and Esquin had solid business in the city. 
you know, at that time in Burgundy, up until, you know, through the 60s, until the early 70s, uh, Burgundy was largely negotiant wine. So uh, there was a whole revolution in Burgundy that went on in the 70s where people, you know, growers started bottling their own wines and, you know, people started importing those wines. They were looking for markets for those wines. And so there were people who got interested in having wine shops selling that sort of thing. And it wasn't only Burgundy, then it was like growers in Italy. Italy was revolutionizing itself. There were people doing new and creative and interesting things in California. That's why I opened, ended up opening a wine shop. You know, I had a gig at Davis Bynum Winery. When I got out of college, I just, I just needed a job to pay the rent and buy some food. And uh, this is a place that I'd been buying wine when I was in college because uh, he had this super high quality level of bulk wine there that he bottled up in gallons. So I could go in there as a student and like buy four jugs of this stuff and uh, re-bottle it at home and have a bottle of wine every night for a buck a bottle. That was like decent Carignan and Zinfandel blend from Sonoma County. Then, uh, you know, after school, so I, I needed a job. I go, oh, what can you do? Well, I could work in a bookstore. I could like maybe ask this guy that has this wine. I'm kind of interested in wine. Maybe I'll ask this guy for a job. So, you know, I ended up working for him, kind of being a gopher, doing all kinds of stuff. And um, he closed that business up and I ended up uh, opening a wine shop. Because he used to have that Barefoot brand. Yeah, the Barefoot brand was what I was talking about. That was the jug wine. And that goes back to before he had his uh, commercial winery. Dave was a, uh, a writer for the San Francisco Chronicle and he was a home winemaker. So he used to make wine on his, in his driveway and his neighbors called him Barefoot Bynum. That kind of stuck, and he used that label for this jug program he had. But he evolved his line. I mean, he made some serious Pinot Noirs. He was a pioneer in Pinot Noir in the Russian River Valley, made great Sauvignon Blanc. He was the one who introduced me to uh, great Old Vine Zinfandel. He used to make wine from Old Vine Ranch, which uh, ended up becoming famous with Ravenswood. So he had access to a lot of great old historic vineyard sites in Sonoma County. And you sold Ravenswood at your shop? Yeah, I sold Ravenswood I, when Joel Peterson first uh, and, and his partner, Reed Foster. So uh, Reed Foster uh, worked at Draper & Esquin in the city, and he was, I think, Joel's financial backer. Because uh, Joel had a day job then, like, you know, we all did when we were in the business, like my wine shop. I didn't draw a salary for five years. It was kind of my passion. And I, you know, I was like doing carpentry and construction and other stuff, painting houses and uh yeah, I remember when Joel delivered the first wines to me. I think he had Morgan in one arm, Morgan Peterson in one arm, and a case of wine in the other arm in an old beat-up Woody station wagon. And that was like in 1978, you know, or something like that. So, yeah, we sold the first vintages, and uh, we really liked them. Yeah. And your family had kind of been into wine and wineries, right? Um, my mom was quite an accomplished, I call it kind of a sunset magazine cook, you know, like 50s, 60s style cook. She cooked very tasty, fresh food. Wine was a part of the meal every night. And as we were kids, my sister and I, you know, particularly on weekends, not every night, but like on Saturday night, we'd get like a tumbler full of ice that was half wine and half water. And then as we got older, the water would kind of slowly decrease until we were like maybe 15, we'd actually get a glass of wine. So, yeah, that's how I got turned on to wine. You did some home winemaking as well, right? I did, yeah. 
I had my wine shop. You know, I'd made wine before I had my wine shop with Bynum. I'd work crushes up at his place, clean presses, uh, help process fruit. And, you know, I had the bug. So uh, when I was thinking about, you know, moving on and doing something, I don't know if I'd thought about owning a winery yet, but if you got the bug... Uh, you want to see if you can have the chops to make wine. So yeah, I made some old vines in. I helped make Pinot Noir. I made some Chardonnay before I was commercial. Where were you gravitating towards in terms of regions of the world and grape varieties? What were you buying? Initially, when we started the store, it was kind of a people's wine shop. I was in my mid twenties, and uh, you know we didn't have a lot of money, and we thought you know, let's open a store where we can sell authentic wine to people. And we were right at the tail end of that period in California where there were still a lot of historic wineries owned by Italian families, Slavic families, people with an ethnic heritage that was maybe only a generation or at the most two generations away from Europe. And they saw wine as table wine to have on the table every day. And a lot of these people had been making wine prior to Prohibition and then post-Prohibition, particularly post-World War II. Maybe it was the second generation. And, you know, I mean, what happened with California wine post-World War II is most of the popular wine, believe it or not, was fortified wine. So people were drinking all these uh, faux sherries and ports and this kind of sweet stuff. But these cultures that I'm talking about had an appreciation for dry red table wine or dry white table wine, uh, so often made with kind of crazy grapes like Sauvignon Vert or Sylvaner or uh, Palomino or something like that. And some of these wineries, there were still probably a dozen of them around the state that bottled this stuff up. At this point, it usually wasn't in gallon jugs anymore. A few of them had gallon jugs. But you could buy it in bulk. Usually it was a half-gallon jug, and it was quite reasonable. So we thought we'd open this store and start selling that sort of wine to people. And this has kind of all disappeared now. I mean, basically that business in California largely has become large commercial winery box kind of thing. It doesn't exist anymore. But we, we started off that way. And then, you know, we were selling 750s of stuff that we thought was interesting and authentic that was good from producers like Pedroncelli up in Sonoma County. Old Italian family made solid wine that was reasonably priced. Parducci, Guglielmo, lots of vowels, lots of vowels. And then your taste evolves. You're looking for new horizons. Maybe somebody shows up with a bottle of like a Zinfandel from somebody who was doing something that was a little more refined with Zinfandel. I mean, I can remember having a Joseph Swan Zinfandel when I was in high school that my dad brought home that I thought was phenomenal, elegant, complex wine. We started, I started kind of reading more and more. I was reading a lot of wine books. I was reading books by Hugh Johnson and uh, Gerald Asher and all these guys. And when you read about those things that people are describing, you want to taste them and introduce them to people. So... I was one of the first stores in the Bay Area. Our shop got serious about Italian wine, bringing a lot of wines up that weren't available in Northern California and selling them out of the store. I then got involved. Uh, I happened to be up in Portland, uh, got introduced to Oregon wineries. 
and uh, met a bunch of people on a trip up there. And then I ended up getting heavily involved with the organ wine industry and starting to bring organ wines down to sell in my shop. So, you know, the whole thing was like multiplying like crazy. And there were more people in California starting wineries and doing interesting things, making interesting wines, seeking out historic vineyards that have been around, maybe that had gone into jug wines or something. And uh, we were jumping all over those things and selling them. It really makes sense to me that that would have been the springboard to what you eventually ended up doing, which was doing winemaking in the Shenandoah and the Sierra foothills, where you're dealing with a lot of that kind of fruit. Amador at that point was largely Zinfandel, and that's what had survived Prohibition was Zinfandel. You know, there was a little bit of Muscat, there was some Mission, there was a little Carignan. But up until 1970, there was only one winery in Amador County that made it through Prohibition, and that was a winery called D'Agostini. And they were one of the wineries that I was talking about earlier that had these great jug wines. I grew up drinking one of those. So my family in Sacramento regularly bought D'Agostini Reserve Burgundy, which was a three-year-old blend of Carignan and Zinfandel. And, you know, it was like $3 a half gallon or something. But it was solid wine. It was aged for like two years in these 20,000-gallon redwood tanks, which were quite common through the 40s, 50s, and 60s and earlier. And then some of it spent some time in some smaller, more neutral cooperage, but that was basically what it was. And, uh, you know, they weren't too sophisticated about their bottling practices. When they first cracked into a tank, it was pretty good, but uh, probably a 20,000-gallon tank probably took them two weeks to bottle or something. So uh, by the time they got towards the bottom, sometimes it was a little aldehydic. Uh, from exposure to the oxygen. I don't think they knew anything about inert gases or anything at the winery, but it was fun stuff. And I grew up drinking that stuff. It had personality. It was real wine. You know, it was, it was authentic, real wine. You kind of started a Zinfandel project originally. First, I started the Rome thing. So uh, my involvement in Amador was I had my shop. I was buying wine from some of the early wineries up there. And as I said, it was largely Zinfandel. And at the same time, concurrently with that, I started going over to Europe and importing wines from my shop, some Rhone stuff, and got involved. I was drinking wines from different parts of the Rhone. And I thought that uh, the foothills and uh, the granitic and volcanic terroir there would be perfect for Rhone varieties. And it wasn't being done there. There was one guy... John McCready, who was a chemistry professor at Sac State that had a property in El Dorado County, who had some Syrah that he planted in, I think it was like the mid-70s maybe, or the late 70s. And I had sold some of that wine in my shop, but he was the only guy kind of that had done any Rhone stuff up there. I really thought the region was like a diamond in the rough. I thought a lot of the wines were very good. Occasionally, there would be a real hit, but I found a lot of the wines to be a bit rustic. So I thought by, at the time, my original kind of methodology was, I thought doing kind of a more of a Southern Rhone kind of project by blending two or three different varieties together, Grenache, Morved, and Syrah, you could kind of finesse the area. 
And so that was the initial project up there. My first wine was bottled in uh, 87. It was a blend of 85 and 86 vintage. Second wine was an 86 wine. And it was made from a historic Grenache vineyard I'd found up there, blended with some Syrah and some more Ved that I'd gotten elsewhere. And then we, I got a few growers to start uh, planting some and grafting over to some Rhone varieties. We got a guy to plant some uh, Grenache, more Ved, Syrah, and some Cinso. These varieties together to kind of finesse the reason. I kind of refined that thought as I, I started making wine up there and realized that a lot of the initial rusticity to the wines up there wasn't just grape varieties. It was actually the way people handled the fruit in the wineries. And I think one of the things I've been able to accomplish is I've brought kind of a different mentality to the region as far as how wines are made, how to manage tannin levels, phenolics. We also are pretty sophisticated about our barrel program at the winery and the way we manage the cooperage that we have. It's not that we use so much new cooperage, but we're able to, we buy very, very good cooperage and we maintain it very well. We do well with it. Also, I feel very fortunate now that we've established a lot of other vineyard sites and we're enjoying the fruits of mature fruit from mature vineyards. So it's great when you start a project, particularly with new varieties. It could be Rhone varieties. It could be Italian varieties. It could be anything. But, you know, you've got to get through that period of the first 10 or 15 years when the vines are young and they're not as expressive yet. But once your vines get older, that's when things really start to rock. Is there much own-rooted material in the area? We use rootstocks and own-rooted. Uh, when I'm farming for other people and it's their money, I hate to use own-rooted because, uh, you know, you can obviously get phylloxera and it's a big investment. But um, what we found, with, particularly with Syrah, Syrah early along had some issues, some graft union issues. It's generally known as Syrah decline. And we've had to replant probably half of our vineyards due to Syrah decline. And rather than tear out whole sections, which we did do in one block, we've decided just to do this on a one-by-one -one basis. So we've slowly replaced dead vines. And I think we're ahead of the game now, but this year we may have to replant like 500 vines or something. We found ohm-rooted vines are healthier than the grafted vines with Syrah. Uh, we found some rootstocks that don't seem to have that problem, so we've gone with those rootstocks. You know, I mean, if you get a grafted vine, you know, it's going to be three or four bucks a vine, and, uh, and cuttings cost nothing. So in the last few years, we've been taking cuttings from good plants, and um, we've been sprouting them in the cellar in the winter and getting root system developed and then planting them in the vineyard, and we've had good luck with that. You know, the one side downside to uh, Syrah that is ohm-rooted, Syrah tends to be a very vigorous variety. So if you're in, in an area where the soils aren't very divigorated, you're going to be fighting canopy a lot because ohm-rooted Syrah really wants to grow like crazy. So we find in places that are more vigorous, we have to do a little more work in the vineyard. We grow all of our Syrah vertical shoot positioned on a 
like eight foot row spacing, about six feet between vines. So it's tighter than traditional California, but it's not super radical like in the Northern Rhone or something. But, you know, if we did that, we'd have a jungle. So I think what people have to realize who are trying to imitate stuff that's going on in Europe, you got to realize where you are and how you're going to grow it and how you're going to manage canopies and how much labor you want to put into managing those canopies. And then you have to do the math on what you're going to get for a bottle price for the wine. Is, is it going to pay? You know what I mean? Or are you just, is this a hobby? I think we've worked out a nice balance and we're kind of digging the ohm rooted stuff. And the Sentinel Oak Vineyard was ohm rooted from the beginning and it's an older vineyard now, so it's slowed down. So its canopy is fairly well ma- self-managing at this point. Yeah. And then what's the deal with Syrah decline? That's related to the graft? Yeah, it's um, nobody really knows for sure, but they think it's kind of a bark, kind of like canker disease or something like that. And But it, what it does is it essentially cuts off uh, a water transpiration. So, I mean, the vine dies because it's basically not getting any water. But you see a difference in the quality of the fruit from own rooted versus grafted Syrah? No, I think the fruit quality is about the same. Yeah. And the yields seem to be about the same. But, you know, maybe you get a little more yield from the ungrafted vines. But if we think we have too much crop, we adjust our crop size anyway. We drop fruit. So the advantage then is that you could have an older vine later in the game later in the game and yeah i think we you all want to have vines that don't have disease that are healthy vines you know basically you want healthy leaves on a vine so you have photosynthesis and you get your fruit ripe that's the whole idea in the short term helping with ripeness in the long term the vine might live to a longer age yeah assuming you don't get phylloxera the, what we do about that is, is any laborers who come on the property, we don't allow any vehicles on the property. They have to come through a gate, and all the tools that are used are our tools, and all our tractors stay on our property. We don't use them on other properties, so we kind of quarantine stuff. And I don't know. We may eventually get phylloxera at some point, but I think in the long term, it's probably more economical to do it the way we're doing. We've kind of decided that, yeah. How wide is the range that you're sourcing from geographically? It's about 50 miles north of the winery would be the furthest north. So we source and have relationships with growers, mostly monopole situations and long-term relationships. Often I was the vineyard consultant for the parcels from like Auburn, which is about 50 miles north of us, to West Point, which is about 35 or 40 miles south of us. And then most of it falls between the 1,000-foot and the 3,200-foot contour. And then I work with one grower, Syrah grower, that's actually in the Clements Hills Appalachian of Lodi that has a very nice Syrah vineyard that I like that we use in our Cote de Syrah that's in a Kamita sandy granite loam site that really works well for that program. And that particular vineyard makes up usually half of the blend. Do you see a connection between the soil type or maybe the vine age and then what kind of wine that ends up being for you in terms of what bottling it goes into? Yes, definitely. In fact, we've chosen specific sites for particular wines with the type or style or structure that we want in that wine. So the reason we chose this Clements Hill site 
for this particular Syrah is this is the Syrah that we sell at a younger age that we wanted a profile that was more like a Crows Hermitage or a Saint-Joseph, more fruit forward, less structured, but we still wanted that nice meaty quality and we wanted good acidity. But we wanted something that we didn't have to have in a two-year barrel program. This is only in like a 14-month barrel program. And then we try to give it a year in the bottle before we sell it. So we wanted something that would evolve quicker. What's the plantings like in terms of percentages? I mean, if you go out and try to find Syrah or Grenache or Mouvedre, what's planted more? Syrah is pretty much kind of at the level it's been at. Um, Maybe it's gone up a little bit. Uh, There seems to be a lot more interest in Grenache now. I know a lot of the consulting I've done, I've recommended people plant more Grenache, particularly in some warmer sites. But uh, I've dealt with some uh, clients recently that have some very sandy granitic sites that are in warmer locations, and I've recommended Grenache for those locations. And then more, there seems to be a surge in interest in the foothills in Morved. So I don't really know of a whole lot of new plantings of Morved, but I know there's a lot more interest in Morved. So Grenache on a not warm site can be challenging? No, it's just going to ripen later. Uh, we actually have Grenache, two Grenaches we make from very cold sites. And actually, they're almost among the very last things we harvest each year at the end of October. But I just think Grenache does better in warmer sites. It's a variety that can take some heat. So, yeah. In California, there's a historical lineage for Zinfandel like a lot of the people you're talking about planting Zinfandel either before prohibition or keeping it around even during prohibition for home winemaking. And then there's a historical lineage for Mataro, which is Morvedra. Right. Do you see certain cultures or communities that really supported Grenache or Syrah in the foothills? No, I think the Grenache thing is more kind of hipster winery kind of thing. People that are, know what's going on. There was definitely Grenache, like down in the Gilroy area, there was a lot of Grenache. There was Grenache up in Mendocino County, definitely in Sonoma and in the foothills. And I think you'll see more and more Grenache planted. I think it makes really interesting wine that's uh, accessible at a younger age and delicious. Going back to Zinfandel, Zinfandel was kind of planted everywhere. I mean, Zinfandel made a huge splash on the scene when it was introduced in California in the 1850s and 1860s, and it immediately won, you know, like competitions at the state fair and stuff because it's so accessible, I think, when it's a young wine compared to probably the Cabernets it was competing at that needed a lot more time to kind of show their stuff. And Zinfandel was planted everywhere, and I think... It survived and excelled in the places where it really is now because those were the best ones. So Paso Robos and Dry Creek and, you know, the Mendocino Highlands and the hillsides of the Napa Valley and Amador, Oakley, those are the best places for Zinfandel. And that's where it survived and done well. You know, I mean, growing grapes, not everybody who grows grapes makes wine. You know, there's a lot of people that grow grapes, and it's a business of growing fruit. So, I mean, if the grape business tanks, like maybe it did after World War II or something, 
they may have torn out the grapes and planted prunes. And then maybe the prune business tanked, so they tore those out and they planted hops. And then maybe that tanked, and then they're into apples, you know. So people are always, who are farmers, are always kind of looking for the next thing if something is economically uh, not uh, paying back to the bank. It's difficult to grow good fruit that has personality. I think you really need to pick the place that matches the variety. Which is kind of a European idea, right? That kind of sophistication, I think, is finally translated here. And some of it uh, was naturally occurring, like what I was saying about Zinfandel. The vineyards that survived were the ones that probably did well in those places. But in my case with the Rhone thing and the Sierra Foothills just came from my studies and intuition from being in Europe and being places and trying it out, trying experiments and then expanding it. And th that's how it works. You saw granitic soil and you thought, hey, I know a place where there's granite. Yeah, and I knew that and I knew the climate. And then there's this volcanic soil there too. So yeah, we had two things going on. And you have actually two labels. You have the Eastern Wines label and then you have Terre Rouge. And one focuses on the Rhone grape varieties, both red and white. And the other label, Easton, focuses on Zinfandel and Barbera. Started the Terre Rouge label first. So this is like 1985. I come up with the name Terre Rouge. It's an homage to terroir, red earth. That's what it was about. And back then, most people were just thinking about climate. If you read literature about viticulture in California, people weren't talking about dirt that much back then. They were mostly just talking about temperature and degree days and all that stuff. So we started that project. And then uh, I was uh, making wine in 1991 on a crush pad below a vineyard, a Zinfandel vineyard that was up the hill. And I was punching down or something, and this guy pulls up in his truck, and he comes over, and he goes, uh, you wouldn't want to buy five tons of Zinfandel, would you? And I said, uh, hmm, well, why do you still have Zinfandel around, and is it overripe? Because it was kind of later in the season. And he goes, no, this is the part of my vineyard that ripens the last. And I was saving it for my son. He said he wanted to make some wine this year. But he decided he didn't have time to do it, so I'm going to go ahead and sell the fruit. Well, I knew this vineyard had won lots of awards. It was a great vineyard site. It had a lot of exposed granite outcrops in it. So I said, well, let me see if I can get the, the money together, because making five tons of Zinfandel is not only buying the grapes. I had to buy a set of barrels for it. You know, you have to think about bottling it, the whole process, you know. So it turned out that the place I was making wine, my Rhone wines that I had an agreement to make there, they were a Zinfandel winery. That was one of their features. They didn't want me making Zinfandel there. So I went to some other friends across the street that had a winery, and they were nice enough to allow me to rent some space there and, and make wines there. And I rounded up some barrels. I borrowed some money from my uh, dad on a two-year loan, said I'd pay him back after I sold the wine, and uh, it all worked out. And what I was thinking then, too, is the Rhone thing was new. And uh, I wasn't sure whether that was going to take off or not. I mean, this was kind of like the Wright brothers, right? We didn't know if, if that plane was going to fly or not. Figured maybe I needed a hedge. The Easton label, I decided, well, let's market it separate. It's not a Rhone variety. Let's not confuse the public. Plus, my dad was the guy who loaned me the bucks to do this project. So it was kind of a thank you to him 
to put his name on the label. It wasn't just my name. It was his name as well. So that's why I put the family name on the Easton side. Now we make five different Easton Zins. We make a couple of Barberas. We make a Cabernet Sauvignon. We make a Cab Franc. We make a little high elevation Pinot Noir. We make Sauvignon Blanc. So the whole Easton line has grown and it's half of my production, the Easton line, and the other half is the Terre Rouge line. And and I love them both. I would say my two passions are Zinfandel and Syrah. So, Do you find a conversation that's happened with the winemaking between the two? Like, have you learned something from making Barbera that you took back into the Rome production or vice versa? Probably the hardest wine to make in our area is Zinfandel. And Zinfandel is difficult because the way it ripens, the way it wants to rot, although that hasn't been an issue through the drought because we've had beautiful growing conditions. But we work with a lot of vineyards that have really low nitrogen content. And Zinfandel you got to be careful with it. Otherwise, you're going to get stuck fermentations. You're going to get volatile acidity through the yin-yang. So it's a trickier grape to make. But yeah, I've learned a lot of things about different varieties and how to kind of coax them in the direction we want them to go. But Barbera is a more even ripening grape. It's more uniform. I, I think it's an easier wine to make probably than uh, Zinfandel is. Zinfandel is pretty tricky. Zinfandel is kind of like Pinot Noir as far as difficulty, but I think more difficult than Pinot Noir even, personally. I think you also tend to pitch your Zinfandel at that weight level, like yeah. at a Pinot weight level. Like yeah. I just had a bottle of your Zin with a pizza last night. It could have been a lot bigger wine, thinking to California Zins that I know. Right. And I don't know of a lot that are lighter than that wine that I had last night that are California Zins. I, I think of wine as being part of the table, not dominating the table, not dominating the conversation. I like an elegant Zinfandel, but that kind of Zinfandel that I make was quite common in the 1980s, in the 1970s. You know, that's how I learned to make Zinfandel from guys who made balanced Zinfandel. And actually, you know, my Zins probably are a little more powerful than theirs are. I'm kind of a bridge between that world when I don't know how accurate their alcohol levels were on their labels. They could have been inaccurate, but a lot of those wines were listed between 12.5% and 14% alcohol. You know, even from wineries like Ridge back then, Ridge made a Fiddle Towns in that was 12.5 or something. And, you know, some of the Swan wines and the wines from Bynum, the guy I worked for, a lot of the old vines in and, uh, Americo Raffinelli, who was Dave Raffinelli's father, those wines were beautiful wines, you know, 13.5% alcohol. Going back to the 50s, I've had the opportunity to taste a lot of the Monte Rosso Zinfandels from Louis Martini. Very balanced wines, you know. Joel used to work that site. Joel did, and I think uh, Morgan does now, his son does. The vineyard site's gorgeous. That whole ridge is great. I mean, Mount Veter has had some incredible Zen vineyards like the Brandland Vineyard that I think Peter Franis works with right now. That's beautiful fruit. You sourced some material from them at one point, right? Brandland? Yeah, I did. Yeah, I did. Yeah, sourced some Mourvedre from up there. Yeah, some cuttings. That was yeah. good Mourvedre. Yeah, yeah. Like the Brandland Mourvedre was Yeah, like... that was great stuff. Yeah, Steve made wine from that. So what have been some key vineyard sites? The Gemello family, which is an Italian family that had like a post-prohibition license he made an incredible Zin in 1976 from the Ferraro Ranch, which is an old vineyard in Amador County that was very Italianate, beautifully balanced, aromatic wine. 
but I'm sure it was pretty gnarly when it was young, but when it came around, it was gorgeous. And it was not a particularly heavy wine. It it was a gorgeous aromatic wine. Before I was making wine, I remember uh, some of the early wines that Jed Steele made from Mendocino Highlands, from uh, the Zini Vineyard and the uh, Duprat Vineyard. These are vineyards up above the fog line in Mendocino County. Those are famous vineyard sites there. And of course, Old Hill I mentioned earlier, which is uh, in the Sonoma Valley. And up in Amador County, the uh, Deaver Vineyard, some great old Zins from Deaver's property. Deaver was uh, selling a lot of his stuff in the 60s to home winemakers. And uh, one of the home winemakers was a guy, Charlie Myers, who was an English professor at Sacramento City College. And he ended up starting a winery after he was a home winemaker called Harbor Winery. And one of the wines that he made was poured for Bob Trinchero at Sutter Home. And uh, the next year, Bob bought some of the grapes and made a 68 Sutter Homes Infidel from Amador County that caught everybody's attention. And then all of a sudden, Carneros Creek, Mayacamas, Clodeval, all these wineries were buying grapes from Amador County. Daryl Cordy was involved back then, right? Back in the late yeah, Daryl. Well, Daryl was a friend of Charlie Myers. They were good friends, and uh, they were both into wine and food. Daryl was uh, an early supporter of the Foothills, and you know, used to sell that D'Agostini Reserve Burgundy. I was talking about the stuff out of the Redwood tanks. That was Cordy Brothers sold that stuff in their store. So he he was familiar with the region. And was also selling wines, you know, international wines in his place. He'd gone to UC Davis. He spoke five languages. And he uh, ended up consulting with the people that built Montevina. They decided to build this winery up in Amador. And Daryl was the consultant for that. Helped them choose the varieties and stuff. At the same time, there was a, a guy who'd gone to Stanford who was in, from a farming family in Fresno. And one of his roommates at Stanford, who was the county council for Amador County, and they decided to, uh, with a third partner, buy a 400-acre walnut ranch in Amador. Because Amador was sheep, cattle, walnuts, prunes, and grapes. That was it. And they bought this 400-acre ranch. It ended up being called HFH Ranch. They planted... Zinfandel and Sauvignon Blanc, and they were one of the first big customers for uh, Montevina. They sold the ranch a couple years ago, but they ended up being one of the major grape growers in the Shenandoah Valley, and they sold a lot of it to the Bonaterra program that Fetzer has. That's where a lot of it went, but lots of places. But up, up before that, in the 50s and 60s, a lot of the grapes went to Lodi wineries, or they went over to the Napa, and they just kind of got lost in a blend somewhere or something. From the Shenandoah. From the Shenandoah, yeah. You know, it's interesting because I feel like because you were already an adult and because you had already formed your palate by the time the high-octane 90s came around, the 1990s, I feel like you just kind of ignored them. Your style was already dialed in. I think that you were kind of like, I'm not into that. The big wine thing. And well, just- you, you know why is because, uh, see, when I first got into the wine business, uh, you know, we know there was just a three-year drought in California. Well, the previous one that I remember was 76, 77. 
and Montevino was around then. And I remember these high-octane wines that everybody made in those drought years there. And I put some of those wines away in my cellar. In fact, I may still have a few bottles. Those wines didn't age very well. So I didn't like the way those wines developed, and I didn't like that high-octane stuff. And I don't want to taste heat in wine. I mean, you know, if I want alcohol like that, I'll drink a cocktail or something. You know, I want wine, as I said earlier, to marry at the table. And you pointed out a good time period. I think Zinfandel changed in the early 90s. And I think it had to do with Robert Parker's influence, where people wanted more flamboyant style of wine, bigger, higher alcohol wine. And those wines got big scores. And so people started imitating that. And then eventually the Chateauneuf de Pop region started imitating that because Chateauneuf de Pop made a huge change somewhere between 95 and 98. I think I remember it with the 98 vintage when everything started getting amped up there. And so it all got ramped up and dialed up and has been for the last 15 years. What's interesting, and probably a lot of your listeners on your show are uh, people that are probably under 35 and maybe they're in buyer positions, they're sommeliers, because I get this all the time when I go into sell my wines in places. Their only exposure to Zinfandel has been the Zinfandel that's the monster. They don't have any reference point to these styles of Zinfandel that I was fortunate to experience beforehand that are this more balanced classical style that'll age for 20 years. Have you seen rises in one label, the Eastern label or the Terre Rouge label at, at different times? One of the great things about having two labels is, you know, a lot of buyers don't want to have multiple wines from one winery on a list. And it's allowed me to get multiple placements in restaurants by having two brands. That works well for me. But it's evened out pretty well now for us. And in some parts of the country, people don't get Syrah, you know, and people have dis Syrah. And there's all the theories about, you know, the cheap stuff from Australia. And I think it has a lot to do with the fact that some people planted Syrah in places that shouldn't have had Syrah planted in the first place. They were just trying to jump on the bandwagon. I think it goes back to you've got to plant the right grape in the right soil that's going to be expressive for that variety and work for that variety. So we've talked a lot about red grapes in this interview, but you also have made quite a few wines from white grapes, whether they be Rhone grapes or Mediterranean grapes. Right. We also make 100% Roussan, which is, I think, our longest-lived wine. We make Grenache Blanc. But our Grenache Blanc is different than Santa Barbara County, Central Coast Grenache Blanc. It's, the skins are a little thicker on the Grenache Blanc we grow. It's a very cool site. It has a little bit more of a phenolic-y kind of resiny quality to it. It's more like white prairot, and I like it a lot. I like it particularly a lot. It has a, a real saline character to it that I like with uh, grilled sardines. It's one of my favorite aperitif white wines I make. You're famous for getting Roussan cuttings from Shav and trading him in, right? Right, yeah. Yeah, that was kind of done on a fluke when he was over here. He was taking some classes at UC Davis at the time. So I proposed that to him, and he said, sure, why not do it? You know, And we did it, and I'm really happy with the plant material we've gotten. It, it's great. I think it's a difficult grape to grow. It's a very uneven ripening grape. You need to have filtered sun on it, and it gets its flavor uh, when the fruit gets blushed kind of a mottled kind of reddish color to it. But you can have that action going on on, on the side of the cluster that is facing the sun. But on the if you grab that cluster and flip it over, the backside can be green, which is great for acidity and different flavor tones. 
But I think sometimes we have to go through that vineyard and harvest selectively multiple times to get the kind of fruit we want. And, you know, it depends what you want to make. Um, You can go through early and pick greener fruit and make a more austere kind of crisp style wine like you might find in the foothills of the Alps. But I think we want to make a little bit richer wine, typically, that has a little bit more of that almond marzipan quality once it is aged. And I think they have difficulty growing that variety in France because in France, they get rainfall generally throughout the growing season, 12 months a year. And California has an interesting rain cycle where our rain generally stops by the middle of June and then we don't get rain again until sometime in October and usually not heavy rains. And by then the Roussan's going to be harvested. So generally uh, we're able to harvest clean fruit, which is difficult for them in France and Roussan likes to rot. Do you find any ups and downs to using lees with Marsan or Roussan when you're working with those grape varieties? We don't usually rack our white wines. Usually once we press, ferment out, put it in barrel, the wines stay pretty clean and we leave them in barrel on lees until we bottle them late the following spring. So for us, that protects the wines, keeps them fresh, and it also gives them a nice richness and it allows them to go through a natural ML if they want to go in that direction with the white rones. So when you blend Marsan, Roussan, and Viognier, what's important to keep in mind when you do that? With that wine, we planted the vineyard to 50% Marsan, 25% Roussan, and 25% Viognier. So we wanted it to be Marsan dominated. So we kind of shoot for that those kind of percentages each year. It doesn't always work out that way, but that's what, what we try to do. And we're trying to make a white wine that's very floral. In good years, that Marsan has these aromatics like almond blossoms. I feel like I'm driving a convertible car through an orchard of almonds in full blossom. You get that aroma and that kind of honeysuckle. And then the other varieties add the complexity of Viognier. You get a little of that white peach and apricot. And then the Roussan, you know, you get a little bit more of the resiny quality there. So I think it's a really nice, complex blend. So are you doing a co-ferment with the Marsan, Roussan, and Viognier, or are you fermenting them separately and then blending them? It depends on the year. In some years, they ripen at different times, so they're picked separately. But in the years where we can pick them at the same time, we'll co-ferment, say, the Roussan. In that particular vineyard, this is a single site called Sumaca. In that particular vineyard, the Roussan tends to ripen later. So we, we have co-fermented the Marsan and the Viognier together. Uh, in this case, the Viognier has higher acidity and Marsan is notoriously low in acidity. So yeah, it's complementary, And that's one of the reasons for blending it together too. But generally, we keep them separate and put them together before we bottle. Is it more accessible when you drink it in a co-ferment? Is it more harmonious? or? Well, we generally bottle age our white wines for a while before we release them anyway, so I, I don't really see any difference yet. They start off very primary and kind of fruit forward, and they really don't develop the nuance for a couple of years in the bottle. And we're very reductive, you know, meaning we keep the oxygen away from all of our white wines in particular. So these wines, basically, they're never exposed to oxygen. They're in barrel. They're sitting on leaves. They're never racked. They're topped. So these wines are like super slow to evolve. 
What is a good site for Marsan Roussan Vignet? A cooler site, so you can try to maintain the acidity, but get the fruit ripe. And I prefer sites that have rockier soil. When you're searching for sites for the reds, and you're thinking that something's going to go into a, a wine that's more accessible young, or something else is going to be a long ager, what are you looking at for those different sites? If I'm looking for something that's going to be quick to the bottle, fresher, less structured. I'm looking for lighter soils, less rocky soils, sandier soils. They're going to make more fruit-forward wine. Uh, if I'm going to make something that is going to be for longer aging, I'm looking for heavier soils, rockier soils, more stress sites. What's next for Bill Easton? I feel like you've already had a long career. You've established two brands. You've worked with a number of different grape varieties, so a whole lot of different bottlings. But is there something on the horizon you'd like to achieve? Work with these vineyards that, you know, are getting older and older, and we're just getting better and better fruit from these vineyards. So I find that really exciting and enjoyable. As far as anything new, yeah, I you know, we've got some plans to experiment with a little Vermentino, I think, do a little project. Uh, you know, I have other interests, too, so that are non-wine related, so uh, maybe I'll go off in one of those directions. Bill Easton still wonders about which directions might be the most fun to go down. Thank you very much for being here today. Thanks for having me, Levy. Bill Easton of Easton Wines and also Domaine de la Terre Rouge. All Drink to That is hosted and produced by myself, Levy Dalton. Aaron Scala has contributed original pieces. Editorial assistance has been provided by Bill Kimsey. The show music was performed and composed by Rob Moose and Thomas Bartlett. Show artwork by Alicia Tenoyan. T-shirts, sweatshirts, coffee mugs, and so much more, including show stickers, notebooks, and even gift wrap are available for sale if you check the show website, alldrinktothatpod.com. That's I-L-L, drinktothatpod.com, which is the same place you'd go to sign up for our email list or to make one of the crucially important donations that help keep this show operating. You can donate from anywhere using PayPal or Stripe on the show website. Remember to hit subscribe or to follow this show in your favorite podcast app, please. That's super important to see every episode. And thank you for listening.